The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 19th, 2021. On this week's show, the New York Times' Tokyo bureau chief, Matoko Rich, will join us to assess Japan's readiness and willingness to host the Summer Olympics, which are going to start this week, no matter what anyone wants. We're also going to talk about how this NBA Finals went from eh to kind of a classic. And we'll discuss Giannis Antetokounmpo, the Greek philosopher. Finally, we'll review Space Jam, a new legacy, starring LeBron James, Bugs Bunny, and naturally, Don Cheadle as a computer algorithm named LG Rhythm. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I am the author of The Queen and the host of the new podcast, One Year, about the various and sundry things that happened in the year 1977. And this week is going to be an episode about sports, about the first woman to get a real shot at being a baseball announcer. So look out for that and subscribe so you can hear it. Also in DC, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. I was, I was like too much kind of, you know, obsessed with myself to even remember to uh, introduce you. So there's a slight hesitation <laughs> there. But now you are here. Always an honor and a pleasure to have you here, Stefan Fatsis. So, uh, 1977 is terrific. Josh, one year is terrific. Back um, to me. Thank you. Yes. In honor of the series, I decided to do uh, a 1977-related afterball this week on the show. And as I was looking for topics, I was like, oh, yeah, that was good. That was interesting. Oh, this looks great. That would be perfect afterball. And I didn't know what the sports episode was about that you had done. And lo and behold, that was it. So I'm not doing that for my afterball. Rest assured, Josh, I found something else. Our minds have melded, but I look forward to your afterball. And with us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and upcoming Slow Burn Season 6. And up at 6, his time this morning to record with Matoko Rich, who is on Tokyo time. It's Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Hey, good morning. The The whole time zone thing is uh, becoming uh, an issue. Have, have we talked to, to the world about that, about maybe putting us on the same time zone? Well, I mean, the thing is, I get up at six o'clock every morning. Humble brag. Most people don't see my face and hear me talk, though, this early in the morning. Do uh, you get up at 6 a.m. just because it makes you feel better about yourself to know that you're attacking the day? I do feel superior to most people. I'm like one of those people that that thinks... You know what? I've done more by eight AM than most people have done already. So So you're not you're not just getting up because of East No, Coast I really time. want to lord it over people as well. Mission accomplished today. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. A year after they were postponed because of the pandemic, the 2020 Tokyo Olympics are scheduled to begin on Friday. And barring the boycotts of 1980 and 1984, I can't remember an Olympics starting amid so much uncertainty 
and gloom. Dozens of people arriving for the Games have tested positive for the coronavirus, including athletes in the Olympic Village, where thousands will be staying. On Monday, we learned that an alternate on the U.S. women's gymnastics team tested positive, and other athletes also have tested positive upon arrival in Japan. Motoko Rich is the Tokyo Bureau Chief of the New York Times. She is with us now. Motoko, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. These are going to be weird Olympics no matter what. No fans in the stands, self-service medal ceremonies in the name of social distancing. The Japanese public for months has been firmly opposed to staging the games. Tokyo is under a state of emergency. Positive tests have been climbing in the city. I hate to ask a what's the mood question, but we've never had this sort of tension between an Olympics and its host city. What is it like there now as the opening ceremonies approach? Well, I think there's a high level of anxiety at this point. I mean, there's so much media, just uh, local media and also international media covering every little test, positive test that comes out. So it's really hard not for people to feel anxious, not to mention, as you say, cases are climbing in the city itself. So every time we hear there's a gymnast who's tested positive there, a beach volleyball player who's tested positive here, two players on the South African football team who've tested positive, it's hard not for the public to say, oh my gosh, this thing is spreading rapidly as people are coming into the country. So over the weekend, there was a poll that showed something like 87% of people are really worried about hosting the Olympics in the middle of a pandemic. The borders have been closed in Japan, so I think the fact that tens of thousands of people are suddenly coming in all at once is creating a lot of anxiety. The Japanese media is kind of crawling all over the Olympic Village. You know, they're taking footage of people who look like foreigners or walking around on the streets or going to bars and sort of, you know, the media is attacking them. Who are you? Are you associated with the Olympics? Why are you out and about? So there's definitely a lot of kind of weird stuff that's going on and anxiety associated with the games, even before they've started. And here's how the IOC is handling this from a public relations standpoint. Thomas Bach, the president, says there's zero risk from the games to Japanese citizens. The associate director of the Olympic Games says this is probably the most controlled population at this point in time anywhere in the world. These are the messages that people in Japan are hearing from organizers. Um, I can't imagine that that's playing very well. Well, especially since the organizing committee from Tokyo threw them a welcoming party. So everyone knows that Thomas Bach came into the country. He took a trip down to Hiroshima. You know, he only spent three days in quarantine and then suddenly he's appearing at press conferences and then he's going to this party. And when asked about it, he says, well, you know, I'm just a guest. I'm sure they're following the rules. So I think he's coming across as a bit imperious at this point, And there is a lot of anger. Um, also, at his first appearance at a press conference since entering the country, you know, he made a little slip up and, and thanked for the everyone. Chinese people. For the athletes, for all the delegations and most importantly, also for the Chinese people, Japanese people. Everyone noticed. And there was this hashtag trending on Twitter in Japanese as what will Bach do next? So um, I think there's a lot of cynicism and, and I don't think a lot of people feel like they're being told the straight story. You know, Matoka, I'm, I'm really interested because you mentioned a poll earlier that, you know, showing a sizable majority of people there don't want the games there. And this is... Also, a piece of a, a time where it feels like the Olympics every year are increasingly unpopular in host cities. Mm. So I'm just kind of wondering, 
Was there ever a point at which there was a majority of people that wanted to have the game so that there was an approval rating that was not, you know, negative at this point? That's a really good question. I don't totally know the answer to that. I mean, I I will say that before COVID, it did seem like people were pretty excited about the Olympics. And the evidence for that is that applications to be a volunteer were way oversubscribed. And also applications for ticket sales domestically were also way oversubscribed. So I tried to get some tickets for my family and we had to enter like multiple lotteries and we weren't getting tickets. You know, we'd see friends and ask, did you get a ticket? Did you get a ticket? Like we couldn't find anyone who'd actually gotten tickets. So it seemed like it was super popular before COVID hit, and then everything changed. And the the one thing that I find, you know, getting back to Josh's point about the imperious nature of the International Olympic Committee, is that the Japanese government is in a terrible position here. The IOC and the local organizing committee control effectively the, the the ability to say whether the games would go on or would not go on. What is that sort of level of tension and how's the Japanese government dealing with the the fact that there are going to be, you know, 15 to 20,000 people arriving this week for an Olympics that nobody in the country seems super excited about and could put the legitimacy of the the government itself under scrutiny. Well, it's been really weird watching this for the last few months, because on the one hand, um, the Tokyo governor has definitely, there's been some tension between the Tokyo governor and the central government over the management of the COVID situation, which of course bleeds over, it can't help but be inevitably tied to the Olympics, because the public kind of felt that they were getting the wool pulled over their eyes and they were being told to do things in order that Japan could hold the Olympics no matter what. It was kind of this do or die situation. We're going to hold the Olympics and the whole country has to sacrifice in order for that to happen. So I think there was a lot of tension over that. The Tokyo governor seemed much more aggressive about really wanting to manage COVID, whereas the central government really wanted to make sure that the economy kept running. And so they would push for more opening at a time when the Tokyo governor was sort of saying, I'm not sure we're ready yet. So there was a lot of that tension, which was tangentially, but obviously inevitably related to the Olympics. As it's gotten closer to the Olympics, I mean, I think everybody's decided that they have to be on message and row in the same direction. Um, But the central government has been super supportive. And I mean, I've even talked to people um, who are like bureaucrats who are working um, within the cabinet office who've almost been moved to tears talking about how important it is for Japan to hold the Olympics. I mean, there's a lot of kind of pride and memory of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, which was Japan's kind of re-entry onto the international stage after the war. So I think a lot of those memories and that rhetoric is still there. When the um, country bid for the Olympics, it was they, you know, made this narrative that it was going to be recovery from the 2011 tsunami and nuclear disaster. So I think the government feels kind of like in for a penny, in for a pound. We have to stick to that narrative. But as for the potential risk to the government, you're so right about that. There was a um, poll in those polls that showed everybody's really concerned. The uh, approval ratings for the current prime minister are lower at the lowest they've been since he's taken over as prime minister. So there's a lot of risk for him, and he's got an election coming up in September. So in Olympics past, I think it has always been the case that when there's these kind of conversations and concerns about 
um, you know, as Joel mentioned, all of the reasons why the Olympics are unpopular, that those are reserved for before the games and after the games, that the stadiums sit empty and unused after. Before, there's all the talk about the costs and the people displaced and and everything. But for those two weeks, it's all kind of, and appropriately, like a celebration of athletic greatness and the spectacle of it and these amazing performances. And I think this Olympics is going to be different because there aren't going to be any fans because um, there's going to be the steady drip of announcements of COVID positives, probably. You're going to even have the socially distanced podiums. I mean, we'll have to see, but I actually find it hard to imagine that we're going to get this like two-week break where we forget, and I'm not even just talking about the people in Japan, I'm talking about people everywhere, that all of the problems here. It's just going to be present every day when we're watching these events. I think you're right about that. I mean, there's probably an extent to which if you're sitting on your sofa uh, in Idaho watching Simone Biles, you're going to be amazed by (laughs) what she can do, right? Um, But there are going to be these announcements that are going to be coming out every day. I mean, if they've already started now, it's hard to imagine that they're going to stop once the game's begin. And there won't be that energy, that feel of the cheers and everybody going crazy. I mean, they said they're going to pipe in audience noise from the previous Olympics so that the athletes can still have that sense of it. But I mean, it's kind of like having a laugh track, right? It's not the same as being in live theater. Uh, So we'll sort of see how it plays and how NBC and the other broadcasters try to limit the kind of downside of their not being spectators. But I think it's inevitable that everyone's going to palpably feel that this is a different games. Well, they did say they were going to pipe in appropriate sound noise from previous Olympics. So if you're like at a team handball match, it will be team handball fan noise. Hugely important. Right, right. And uh, I don't know if they're going to sort of have the swelling sound of excitement when, you know, the race is really close. I don't know how they're going to manage that depending and, and, you know, adapt it to the current events, but they say they're going to try. And they're going to do all kinds of, you know, engagement with social media and having messages related to the athletes, et cetera, et cetera. But it's nothing like, I mean, you t- we've talked to athletes, um, and as, as I'm sure you all have from previous games, that having that sense of the audience in the stadium or in the aquatic center is a huge part of what the Olympics is all about. And I also think for the athletes, I feel sorry for them because there's, it, you know, it's supposed to be a big party, frankly, right, after their competition and that they get to know each other and meet people from around the world. And that's going to be severely limited. Right. And we're talking, I think people we're talking about, oh, well, the, obviously people are restricted in how they can move and where the athletes can go. And we're, we're hearing a lot of that. But I saw that Tokyo is like in this fourth state of emergency. So like, what does a state of emergency mean if you're having a huge international event in town? Like what, what is the, what are the restrictions on movement and things that are there, you know, even before these Olympic athletes get there? Well, it's a huge amount of cognitive dissonance. A state of emergency in Japan has never meant what I saw with my friends in New York or in London or Paris. I mean, we were never under like a super strict lockdown. First of all, they don't have a legal mechanism to mandate that. So it was all based on requests, which in Japan, the power of a government request is quite... um, powerful. Um, A lot of people do follow it, but it's mostly that we're all masked up, that we use a lot of hand sanitizer, that we get our temperature taken even going into, you know, Uniqlo or a restaurant. 
Um, but by and large, people are kind of going about their normal lives. I mean, restaurants were asked to close. They're not allowed to serve alcohol. Um, you, you know, more likely can only get takeout until eight o'clock in certain places. But the trains are crowded. You look at, you know, the famous crosswalks that you see on um, all the movies that represent Tokyo. They're packed. People are out and about. And I think that's partly a function of fatigue, that we've been in and out and in and out of these so-called state of emergencies, and people are tired of it. And the real problem now is that Japan, you know, a super rich country, is way behind the other super rich countries in vaccinating its public. Matoko, do we know if these positive tests that we're hearing about if these are asymptomatic or symptomatic people, how much kind of detail are we getting about this? We're not getting enough detail or we're not getting the detail we want. We don't know 100% for sure if they're all vaccinated. What we've been told is that um, the International Olympic Committee did a deal or, uh, with Pfizer to offer the vaccine to anyone who needed it or who was unable to get it in their country. Um, so anyone associated with the Olympics who wanted to be vaccinated could be vaccinated. And Thomas Bach has repeatedly said that about 80 to 85% of the people in the Olympic village will be vaccinated. But that means there's some who are not. But we don't know in the individual cases, you know, they keep talking about respecting medical privacy, which is what they should be doing. They can't say in individual cases who's been vaccinated or not. We don't know if they're asymptomatic or if they're symptomatic. I'm guessing that they're not just because of the way they talk about them going into quarantine and facilities rather than hospitals. Um, But we don't know for sure. One of the other overhanging factors with these Olympics, and this I think speaks to also the cynicism of the IOC and the desire for the games to be really a TV product, is that they're being held in July and early August in Tokyo. The, the 1964 Olympics were in October because it's hot in Tokyo in the summer. Super hot. Um, what is it like there and how much of a risk factor is the weather? And is that something that is also being discussed in, in the media and among arriving athletes and, and others? For sure. I mean, today there was a training event for beach volleyball and they had to hose down the sand to keep it um, cool enough for them to even, you know, put their feet on it. It's it's hot here. Um, I mean, the literal temperature, you might think, well, that's probably bearable. It's in the low 90s. But then when you add Tokyo's humidity to it, it's really hot. You just break out in a sweat just walking down the street. And the sun is very, very strong and powerful. Even before COVID, this was one of the biggest worries about these games. Like, why are they holding him in July and August? And that's partly about NBC. They didn't want to have a conflict with the football schedule in the United States. So they insisted on the games being held um, in the summer. Because as you rightly point out, the last time Tokyo hosted them in recognition of the hot weather, you know, almost 60 years ago before we really started to feel the effects of climate change, it's really, really hot in Tokyo every summer summer. And so nobody wants to be out there and exercising, much less trying to do their elite performance in this kind of heat. All right. Well, they move the marathon, right? Like 500 miles to the north. That's correct. Yeah. That's going to, the marathon's going to be in Sapporo in recognition of the fact that that would be pretty grueling to have them running in in Tokyo during the summer. Um, And, you know, they keep talking about all these heat Count, as they put it, countermeasures. They're going to be spraying down the streets. They have these mist fans. There's air conditioning in all the buildings as well as the tents. The referees are giving these like ice-filled vests to wear because they're going to have to stand out in the heat all the time. 
So they're trying their best, but, you know, just today we got a news flash that 32, 32 people or something were um, hospitalized in a suburb of Tokyo for heat stroke. Um, and I've been here a couple of summers where I've had to sadly cover, you know, a large number of deaths from heat stroke, usually among the elderly population. So I think part of the hope is that the spectators that we were really worried about, um, because that would be a wide age range of people sitting in the stands, they won't be there. But nevertheless, it's a worry for anybody who's going to have to be out in this heat. So one of the questions that I was thinking about here, and as I'm reading about what's going on in Japan, you know, there's, you know, people, the spectators are banned from coming there. Um, You know, already this is a very expensive games. I mean, it's an expensive endeavor in every host city. That is the major complaint around it. So without fans coming in in the middle of a pandemic which is being economically catastrophic for every place across the globe like what is the sense of the money being spent in Japan and like how bad this is going to look at the end of it like the ledger um w- once these games are completed well like on the one hand this is the most expensive olympics ever which i think they say every time right but the fact of the matter is that the budget is 15 billion dollars that they've spent you know a lot of that is sunk costs right they built the new state new venues um they did a lot of operational planning before covid hit then covid hit they had to postpone for a year so they had to spend another 3 billion dollars on things they have to do to try to prevent um infection spread uh and the cost of postponement added salaries what have you um it's a pretty small proportion. You know, Japan is a super rich country. So if you look at that number, it's not like it's going to, you know, collapse the economy. Um, and a lot of it is a lost upside, right? That they had anticipated, they'd budgeted for or had hoped for something like 40 million tourists to come into Japan in 2020 in affiliate, not just for the Olympics, but you get a, you get a kind of bump when you host the Olympics because it's in the news all the time and people are looking. And, and I think Tokyo has already been trying to market itself as like the super fun playground where you can come and the trains run on time and it's clean and there's anime and there are robot restaurants. And, but there's also tradition and culture with the shrines and, you know, super cool, super power, everything runs well. This is a fun place to visit. The Olympics was going to enhance that. We always know that during the Olympics, it's a little bit of a propaganda marketing exercise for the host country, right? They're, you know, their beautiful scenes of their gorgeous uh, scenery and, you know, they'll jump on the train and the media will go around. So they're losing all of that upside, but they've already lost that during COVID. So it's a little bit of a combination of what's already happened because of the pandemic. And then on top of that, to lose it for the Olympics. Matoko Rich is the Tokyo bureau chief of the New York Times. Matoko, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on the Olympics. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, Giannis and the NBA Finals. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. A week and a half ago, the Phoenix Suns were up two games to none in the NBA Finals. 
And yes, those two games were in Phoenix. And yes, the cliche goes that a series doesn't really start until a team wins on the road. But the Milwaukee Bucks lost game two, despite Giannis Antetokounmpo scoring 42 points. And it seemed at that point like the Suns were just a better and deeper and more balanced squad. But in game three, Giannis scored 41. Devin Booker had just 10. The Bucks cruised to victory. In game four, Booker scored 42. But Chris Middleton had 40 for Milwaukee. And Giannis had one of the all-time great plays in finals history, blocking an alley-oop to DeAndre Ayton. And then game five, back in Phoenix, despite another 40 from Devin Booker, the Bucks had a truly balanced attack. 29 from Middleton, 27 and 13 assists from Drew Holiday, and 32 from Giannis, who combined with Holiday on an alley-oop to seal the Bucks' four-point win. So, Joel, I guess the series has started now. The Bucks are up 3-2 with a chance to win the title on Tuesday night in Milwaukee. How did this go from a series that was kind of underwhelming to one that's really been thrilling and that the Bucks have totally turned around? Well, I think there's two primary reasons. I think uh, Mike Budenholzer's strategic decision to put Drew Holiday on Chris Paul, which seems obvious in retrospect, right? Like we have this really good dominant defensive player. Maybe we should put him on the guy that initiates the other team's entire offense. And the Suns' steady loss of depth um, for Dario Sarge towards ACL in game one. Uh, Torrey Craig plays about 11 minutes a game now, but he's still recovering from a knee contusion in game two. Um, You know, we had a whole segment a couple weeks ago talking about all the injuries in the NBA, and a lot of it is star-focused, right? Like, oh, Anthony Davis got hurt, Kawhi Leonard got hurt, Kyrie Irving got hurt. But we don't just because we don't know who the players are when they get hurt, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And so the Suns are basically down to playing six players. Like DeAndre Ayton played 45 minutes in game five. That's a lot for a center. You don't you hardly see centers play that many minutes anymore. Uh, Devin Booker played 42. So, I mean... Are you saying it's Frank Kaminsky time? Are you telling Monty yeah, Williams Frank it's Frank time. Kaminsky time? <laughs> Frank the Tank is getting out there. I mean, look, man, he didn't even play in game. I don't think if he, if he did, it wasn't very uh, few minutes in game five. And, like, eventually that's going to take a toll on you. Um, and then keep in mind, campaign, another guy. Um, he had 29 points in game two. They talk, We talked all about the Suns' depth. Like, ooh, maybe the Suns have a guy that can take over for Chris Paul, even if he gets hurt or whatever. And since that game, he's averaged 6.2 points a game and only cracked double digits once. So all the depth that the Suns have been relying on all year is just sort of not showing up right now. And a younger, stronger, more physical team like the Bucks, they're taking advantage and they're sort of taking over. I don't. That doesn't mean that they're going to win Game Six. It doesn't mean they're going to win the series. But you have to look at what the Suns are doing now, and you're like, man, it looks like they're running on fumes. That's a really great observation, Joel, that I had not noticed, and I just called up the box score from Game Five, and wow, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, Booker, Ayton, Jay Crowder all played more than forty minutes. Chris Paul at age thirty six is playing thirty five minutes, and Chris Paul did not have, you know, he had a fine game, I guess, um, but it was not a dominant game. A fewer turnovers than he had in in game four. Um, but this was a home game. This was the game for the Suns to win. And, you know, I think that that fatigue factor potentially was evident in just the way the game played out. The Suns went out to a big lead early. The Bucks caught up. The Bucks went out to a large lead near the end of the game, and the Suns sort of, you know, recovered very, you know, very late in the game and went on a 12-3 run late 
to pull within a, a point. Um, and then came the amazing ending. And I think that when we talk about this series, Josh, obviously we're going to focus on moments because that's what we will remember. And you, know, you, you mentioned the alley-oop um, block by Giannis in game four. And in game five, it was the sequence where Drew Holiday uh, steals the ball from Devin Booker, basically rips it out of his hands. And then you know, one of the most lovely and in, you know, in, in interesting 10 seconds of basketball that you will see, the slow motion replay that the NBA showed and has gotten a lot of uh, attention on, on Twitter, um, is really cool to watch. Drew Holiday makes the steal, is dribbling up court, and you watch his eyes surveying what's going on and trying to make the decision of what to do. And I found that to be like the most insightful um, sort of sequence for understanding how athletes process things in real time. You see him look up court, you see him look behind him, you see him look to the side, and then you notice that he, that, that he sees Giannis barreling up court and he has to figure out what to do dribble the, you know, just keep dribbling to try to dribble the, the clock out and, and take a foul and go to the line or make the audacious play of trying to connect with Giannis at the rim. Yeah, that's great. And it's always just really fun to see in a really clutch situation, a player kind of taking the riskier mm -hmm. option and having it pay off um, as opposed to just like pulling it out and allowing himself to be fouled or whatever. And just in general in the NBA, there's too often in these in-game moments, things that happen after timeouts, things that happen after fouls, things decided by... The refs. Yeah, things decided by the refs or decided by coaches or decided by, like, you know, plays out of bounds. And that can be fun, too, like the alley-oop to DeAndre Ayton, which we remember from earlier in the playoffs. But for a game to be decided by a play that was defense to offense in live action mm -hmm. um, is ultimately going to be more satisfying than anything else. And I just find Drew Holiday to be so interesting, Joel, because, you know, he's just clearly like a great dude, just like based on everything we know and hear about him um, with somebody that I really rooted for on the Pelicans. So I have some affection for him and it has like kind of all the markers of a guy who would be extremely consistent. He's like plays with great effort. He's a great defensive player. He's a really great passer, just has a really good all around game. He's just like really strong and can like bully guys in the post. And yet he's extremely inconsistent from a game to game basis in these, especially in these playoffs um, where he'll shoot four for 20 one night and then the next he'll go for 27 and 13. Um, and so I'm always really happy when he does well. Um, and yet he's just this, he has this just like interesting kind of archetype of player who you'd think would just be a guy you can count on every night, but for the Bucks, hasn't necessarily been that in the playoffs. Well, I think that there's offensively, right, that you can't count on him every night to be, you know, a huge contributor. But the one thing we do know about basketball is that defense travels, right? And if you can play defense and you can play it at the level that he does, then like you always at least have that. And that's sort of the difference between him and Eric Bledsoe for the Bucks, because, you know, that was one of the shortcomings of the Bucks last year, that Eric Bledsoe, fairly solid offensive player, 
but like he was nowhere near the defensive, um, fo- you know, foundational piece that Drew Holiday is. And so I will say, I will say one thing though that I feel like, and and this gets back to your point about Drew Holiday covering Chris Paul and what a smart move that is. That Drew Holiday has been so good defensively mm-hmm. over his career that it's actually. Um, like the Pelicans would have him like guard Kevin Durant. Like, yeah. And that was a lot because they, they just like didn't have good wing players. But I feel like the fact that he's been so good has put him in disadvantageous positions. Whereas the Bucks, since they have PJ Tucker, since they have Giannis, right. since they have Chris Middleton, they have good defensive guys. They can actually have Drew Holiday defend a guy that's more appropriate for him to defend as opposed to like having him guard a guy who's like 6'10 or something. Right. Yeah. They absolutely just sick. They said, let's, sick him on Chris Paul and wear him down. He's a bigger guy, more physical guy. And at this point, Chris Paul's not going to overwhelm him with quickness or anything. So basically, you've got a bigger, stronger, younger guy beating up Chris Paul up and down the floor. And of course, that's going to affect the Suns. And it's taken a toll on, on Chris. Chris hasn't been nearly as effective as he was, you know, uh, in the previous series, let alone earlier in this series. And I think, you know, it's sort of, you guys walk with me on this, like, so when the Bucks traded for Drew Holiday and they gave up like five first round picks, you know, this huge contract extension, a dude who never made the, an all NBA team, people were like, man, you know, he didn't make an all NBA team. He doesn't, you know, he's not like a consistent 20 point per game scorer. What are you guys doing? But the two things that people are overlooking is that A, it locked in Giannis, right? Like it showed that the Bucks were willing to go all in and B, that defense is extremely underrated. Like people forget that that is a, the other half of the game. And if you have a guy that can be dominant there, people just sort of forget that, oh, well, that guy's actually taking away one of their offensive threats either. So it's like he can play himself to a, to a draw with Chris Paul just by virtue of the fact that he's such a good defensive player. And Drew Holiday, as you mentioned, Josh, is a good guy. And Giannis is a good guy. And I wonder how much the sort of the, the the personality factor of who you're trading for and who you're making this kind of commitment to matters. Holiday obviously is a great player, but Joel, would you have said like he's the piece that's going to get Giannis to stay? It wasn't like they were signing a, a you know a max superstar um, or luring someone to come to Milwaukee. He's really good. It's also easy to say this now, coming out of Game Five, which has been his best game yeah. in the postseason. There have been games in these playoffs that it, where he's been brutal, mm-hmm. just absolutely brutal mm-hmm. from an offensive standpoint, and like almost cost them, um, you know, some of the earlier series in these playoffs. Well, if they had lost to the Nets, we're not saying this, right? Like, I mean, we'd be like, oh man, Drew Holiday was a terrible signing. I mean, we might have even said yeah. like they they <laughs> right. had the opportunity to trade for Chris Paul, and I I, I mean, I yeah. have a vague memory of us saying this in a previous <laughs> right. show that you know, and they got Drew Holiday instead, and like that was dumb. Well, he got to play. He got to play long enough to redeem that trade, and for us to say, "Oh, it all worked out." But right, yeah. I mean, if they had, if he, if this, if if Kevin Durant moves his foot back half an inch, we're not ever saying any of this about Drew Holiday, and we're like, "Man, the Bucks, you know, wasted another prime year of Giannis, and they got this guy they're committed to, and he's not even like." dependable as an offensive threat. So, yeah, no, you're right. It's still possible that we may be saying some of those things because there is a game six to be played yeah. in Milwaukee. <laughs> That's fair point. We've already mentioned Giannis's block and the alley-oop, and we've talked about Giannis a lot, appropriately. But um, one thing that's gotten a huge amount of attention is this quote from a press conference where he kind of talked about his philosophy of life and approach to sports. Let's listen to that. When you focus on the past... 
that's your ego. I did this. We were able to beat this team for all. I did this in the past. I won that in the past. Mm. And when I focus in the future, it's my pride. Like, yeah, next game, game five, I do this and this and this. Right. You know, I'm going dumb. That's your pride talking. Like, you, it doesn't happen. Like, you're right here. And um, I kind of like try to focus in the, you know, in the moment, in the present. And that's humility. That's being humble. That's not setting no expectation. That's going out there, enjoying the game, competing at a high level. Giannis is just lovely. Um, and I will point out that there's something about these new Greek star athletes, Giannis and Stefanos Tsitsipas. They just exude earnestness, earnestness and innocence. And they come from a culture that I will say is super cynical. And I think what, you know, you have to understand how Giannis grew up to understand why he might think the things that he just said and believe the things he just said. This is a black African kid growing up in an all-white society that is largely racist. This is a kid that sold watches on the street corner in the market in downtown Athens. This is not a kid who had the opportunity to sort of bask in his travel team exploits as a, you know, as a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old. This is not someone that was recruited by colleges, the best schools in America. Um, this is someone who was looked down upon growing up in the, in the society that he grew up in. So it, it, it doesn't surprise me. Um, and it makes me really proud um, as someone who comes from this background to know that he succeeded and overcame and is now uh, a hero in Greek culture, an icon in Greece. Um, and I think his background is really important to understanding how he has become a great player um, and why he says the things that he says and can seem sort of youthful and, and happy um, and modest. Um, and those, 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 you know, all of those characteristics embody who he is as a person. And when you layer it on top of how great he has become and how much greater he can be, is really, a, you know, it's wonderful. And Stefan, I, I could almost feel the emotion of you talking about him like that. Like the, the yeah, pride coming I mean, through. Because I know what yeah. it's like there. Yeah. No, and I mean, it, it, he does seem like a really nice guy. And I, I also think you say whatever you got to say. You know, it almost doesn't kind of matter. You know what I mean? Like, he's great. Right. And, like, that may not that may not be uh, the effective approach of the game. Like, that's not what Kobe did, right? Or that's not what MJ did. And so whatever he says that helps him get up every day and do the things that he does, like, I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know if, like, anybody else can take a lesson from that. I don't actually know if it's an expression of humility, but I do know that, like, he believes it. It, se it certainly seems that he believes mm -hmm. it, and it fuels him in a way um, – Watching him talk, you know what makes him so like sort of charismatic and likable? You can see him thinking as he's talking, right? Like you can just see like he's actually considering the question and turning it over in his head. Because he did, there was an, there's another clip that's going around where he responds to a reporter's question with exactly, right? Like I was just doing. It was what they were, t they were asking him about going for the alley-oop instead of them pulling it back out. And he's just like, oh, yeah, exactly. Like I was just thinking in the moment. I was in the moment. Um 
And so, yeah, I think that that's also sort of like endearing in a time when, you know, people are not quite as excited about like doing the interview process. Right. It's been like a, an ongoing theme in sports for the past year or so that he is willing to allow himself to be that sort of like fun and thoughtful in that moment. Um, it is really, you know, sort of endearing. Yeah. I mean, Josh, it's almost like he still can't believe he's here, you know? I think that's right. And I think that just looking at this quote in isolation, I think the reason that it's traveled around so widely into such acclaim, it's not just about Giannis and the affection that people feel about Giannis. It's the sense that this is um, actually a, a thing that's true and that's pithy and that's succinct and that it's being said by a basketball player, not like a, not a writer, not a philosopher. Um, there is just this notion that coming from this package of this guy who's like not a native English speaker, who's like young, who's uh, um, just kind of coming onto, you know, a, he's he's been the... MVP, but this is his first time in the the finals. He's getting more attention now than he's ever been. That he not only is able to do these things on the court that we haven't seen, but that the way he's able to express himself and articulate a like larger philosophy of like sports and life and existence is just pretty pretty remarkable. And I'm not saying that because oh, like it's surprising that like somebody who's a foreigner can express this. It's like any that any athlete would be conscious at this like sort of 30,000 foot level or that it, like any one of us at all would be thinking yeah. in these terms, I, I think is really interesting. And I think that explains why people are so fascinated with this line. And because I, I do think that when he says something like I focus on, when I focus on the future, it's my pride. That is coming from, his upbringing that is coming from what he endured um, to get to where he is, and you know, like I said, that it still must be shocking to him and his brothers and his parents that this all happened, because you know, coming to Athens, Greece, as this family did, that wasn't expected to happen. This is not something. This is not a a, a, a script that you would have imagined writing. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I know he says that he doesn't live in the past or whatever, but I mean. I, I bet uh, he'll be thinking about that dunk. I bet, I bet he probably rewinds it every now and again <laughs> <laughs> going forward, right? Up next, Space Jam, A New Legacy, colon, a bad movie? On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about what we're thinking and what we're feeling about the Olympics with the opening ceremony in Tokyo just a few days away. To hear that segment, you have to be a Slate Plus member. That membership will give you access to all of Slate's Olympics coverage in audio form and on the website. And trust me, we're going to have a lot. You're going to want to listen. You're going to want to read. If you want to subscribe just for the Olympics, it's only a dollar for the first month. It's a good time to give Slate Plus a try. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. That is slate.com slash hangout plus to subscribe for the Olympics. It's only a dollar for the first month. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Until this summer, LeBron James had played in the NBA Finals in nine of the previous 10 seasons. But in a fortunate bit of timing for Warner Brothers, LeBron's absence from this year's Finals gave him plenty of time to promote his remake of Michael Jordan's 1996 box office hit, Space Jam. Basketball camp is next weekend. You got amazing potential on the court, and I can help you get there. It's not what I want, Dad. You never let me do what I want to do. You never let me just... Do me. The movie was released Friday and already appears poised to be a big moneymaker in its own right. Space Jam, A New Legacy, had the best three-day opening for a family film during the pandemic, earning nearly $32 million. LeBron felt so good about the news that he retweeted an article about the movie's surprisingly lucrative opening with this quote. Hi, haters. And he added a laughing emoji. I'm not a hater, Bron. I, you know, we, I mean, maybe you will think I'm a hater after this segment, but... That's got nothing to do with how good the movie was or wasn't. So let's call this segment Hang Up and Review the Movies. Stefan, we're obviously not part of the target audience here, but did you find the movie good or at least entertaining? Uh, no. Um, hate the movie, don't hate, hate LeBron. I hate her. Before we get into the movie's visual and oral carpet bombing, its endless contrivances, the ABC After School special script that, how should I say, highlights LeBron's shortcomings as an actor... I mean, all of the acting kind of sucks. In the Ooh, movie. Wow. I'm going to disagree with you, Joel, that we're not part of the target audience. I think we are the target audience. Late baby boomer and Gen X sports and pop culture fans who would recognize the animated versions of Diana Taurasi and Anthony Davis, but also get the duck season, rabbit season, Looney Tunes jokes and pick out the guys from A Clockwork Orange, who for some reason are among the cavalcade of TV and movie characters who are numbingly smushed into every pixel of this film. The problem is that our photoreceptors only work so fast and we're not dumb. The thing, uh, this thing is so utterly cynical and pandering. It's not a movie so much as a mashup of available copyrights and trademarks. Uh, Space Jam 2 is a LeBron James vanity project, obviously, just like Space Jam 1 was a Michael Jordan vanity project. But while LeBron's ego is in service of a perfectly anodyne message here, be yourself, love your kid for who they are, etc. And I confess that I never saw Space Jam 1. Uh, this thing makes The Last Dance look like Mother Teresa, an authorized biography. <laughs> Come on, we're supposed to believe that Bugs Bunny is willing to die for LeBron James? <laughs> Have some dignity, man. Wait, as a spoiler, by the way. This will be full of spoilers, <laughs> this, uh, this segment, if you... Uh, want to preserve this, the sanctity of Space Jam, A New Legacy. LeBron's acting is like the on the list of things that are wrong with this movie, not in the top like <laughs> one, one million. I think he is fine. I mean, definitely better than Michael Jordan as an, as an actor for, for going uh, on the, uh, the GOAT rankings there. I mean, Joel, no, but not even Jordan's like biggest defenders think that he's a good actor. You think the Jordan and Space Jam one is better? Well, I was going to let you. I was going to let you go too? through your thing because I, you know, I I actually watched Space Jam uh, the, the day before we recorded this segment, and I was surprised. 
it was much better than I thought it was. And Michael Jordan wasn't nearly as bad an actor as I'd been led to believe. Oh, uh, look out for that toy step, Doc. It's a real Lulu. Bugs Bunny. Eh, you were expecting maybe the Easter Bunny? You're a cartoon. You're not real. Not really. If I weren't real, could I do this? I think some of that is that they're not really asking them to act. They're asking them to sort of be themselves, but mm-hmm. like with a, a few moments of emotional resonance or whatever. Like, yeah, but part and, of the problem, Joel, is the script. I mean, LeBron, the lines LeBron is given to deliver, particularly at the beginning of this film, and if someone wants to rehash the plot, go for it. Um, do not help very much. Wait, wait, I mean, there's a scene during that terrible game, which just goes on forever, where he's like pretending to cry or he's getting emotional talking to his son. And I was like, man, they didn't do you any favors uh, putting that scene in there. But I like I think the thing about the original Space Jam is that they did not ask Michael Jordan to do that much. And Michael Jordan, it reminded me that he was arguably the coolest person in the world or considered the coolest person in the world when Space Jam came out, right? Like 1996. It's impossible for LeBron to create that sort of persona today. Like, just mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that we're in a different, like, media, you know, media environment and there's social media and, like, you know, sports fan bases are sort of balkanized. Like, there's Steph fans and there's KD fans and there's all this, you know, jockeying for legacy. So it's kind of impossible for LeBron to be as universally cool as Michael Jordan was. And so if you watch the original Space Jam, Josh, I think you will be surprised that Michael Jordan was not that bad. And the movie was actually not that bad. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say it was good, but I will, I do think that it was a much more enjoyable watch. Because like you said, I mean, like Space Jam 2 was just, I'm calling it Space Jam 2 shorthand. It was just a jumble of shit. Like I just, I could not keep up with all the different images coming at me and the storyline, and I just got confused and then eventually bored. I think you're just too old, Joel. The, kid, <laughs> the kids of uh, these younger generations would probably be like, wow, there wasn't really enough stuff flying at my face in this movie. It was just too too slow-paced. I also have not seen the first Space Jam. I watched the first five minutes and I like fell asleep. So I, I did not complete the, the Space Jam double bill, but I did watch Space Jam, A New Legacy, and I just... <laughs> feel like this this serves this serves Warner Brothers' interests way more than it serves yeah. LeBron's. And I can certainly understand why he would have signed on to this project when it was originally conceived or um uh, you know when it was being worked on a couple of years ago. Terrence Nance was signed on to direct, who's like actually a really interesting filmmaker. Um, was replaced by Malcolm Dealey, who made Girls Trip, which is a fine a fine movie. But this is not in any way an ambitious project, or in any. Uh, there's not really any attempt made to make this into something kind of interesting, much less <laughs> subversive, which I think a Terrence Nance version would be. But it is just a collection of intellectual property being kind of lumped in together in various scenes for the benefit of no, I don't know exa- who? exactly who. Like, who who benefits from, like, inserting, I don't even remember if it was Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck, inserted into Casablanca. What's up, Doc? I mean, what purpose does that serve? I mean, honestly, it just feels like Warner Brothers just, like, bragging right. about What's in yeah. its catalog? Well, didn't it just feel like an internal communications video or something like that? That like something you saw? Yeah, it's like a demo reel for investors yeah. <laughs> or something like that. 
but there are some individual scenes, and I guess this has gone kind of gone around on social media, that like, I feel like talking about how it's bad, it doesn't really come across like this like kind of eight mile parody where Porky Pig is rapping. Like mm-hmm. that actually happened. Like if you haven't seen the movie, there's this like extended sequence yeah. where Porky Pig is rapping. What up? It's Porky Pig. They call me P double L G step to me. He don't want no trouble. And then there's I'm also the scene, and this did actually go around on social media because they like <laughs> for whatever reason released this in advance of the movie, thinking that it would um, you know, entice people. There's the scene where like the granny character is like playing I don't remember the name of the character, but like whoever Carrie Ann Moss played in The Matrix, it is just like unbelievably embarrassing to to everyone involved to like think that this was like cool or funny or interesting to have this like Matrix parody. There's not any effort made beyond just like putting Casablanca on the screen or putting the Matrix on the screen. It's like they think that it's interesting or clever or smart just to like put in a reference to something else from pop culture. It's like thinking that your work is done. It's like, all right, here's the Matrix. Enjoy. It's like you actually need to do something or like try to make it clever in some way. And there's just none of that at all. Well, Matthew Desson has a piece up on Slade about the inclusion of some of the weirder characters um, that are, that get cameos here or in the background, like the clockwork orange guys <laughs> or, or the Betty Davis character from whatever happened to baby Jane. Um, <laughs> It's just like it's nonsensical, and I just have to emphasize to people listening to this that this is real. We're like, not this making is, this up. This stuff is actually in the movie. In the movie. Um, and I read that, as with many Hollywood films, and you know, you talked about directors dropping out of this or not taking the project, but there were, you know, there were like seven people credited with writing this, and I'm using air quotes um, because this is like. Like put more mom and dad jokes, or dad jokes particularly about LeBron being a dead bad dad at the beginning of the movie, and then just get into a stream of references, and then try to come out the other side with some sort of a redemptive conclusion. And it is the thinnest gruel imaginable in terms of screenwriting. You can just sort of see Joel, like the the Warner Brothers executives, like saying. Put more in, put more in, put more in, more references, more pop culture, more clips, more characters. Yeah, I guess the thing is, is that, yeah, I'm wondering what the limitations were on the writing staff and everybody else. Because, like, in addition Mm -hmm. to you have an amateur in LeBron, right? So you've kind of got to write around him. And then I'm like, I was, even as I was watching the original Space Jam, I was like, man, how do you create a storyline out of all this shit? You know what I mean? I'm just like, I, I was thinking, like, if I had to write, a Space Jam movie or a script, I'm trying to figure out like what I would do. And I was like, the bones of it are sort of, you know, it makes sense. You got a kid and you're integrating him with these cartoon characters that are like uh, sort of a miracle. Like, I mean, in the in, in retrospect, like the Looney Tunes family, like, I mean, that's that was a piece, a landscape of our childhood in a way that it isn't today. But like that world is really interesting and really cool. And you're like, you're trying to merge them all together. And I'm just like, you're sort of limited in what you're going to be able to do to make it coherent or like whatever. But I guess the the thing that sort of disappointed me was that it didn't seem all that fun. You know what I mean? Like it was just going through the, going through the motions. Mm-hmm. And 
and, and that's why I, I came up after I was I watched the original Space Jam. I was like, oh, this is just a monument to LeBron's career. That's why he wanted to do it. It's like it's not that the movie had to be good. It was that you you were able to marshal the resources and people to pull this off. And it's like a monument to your career. And that was sort of the impressive part. Right. Like once you like the movie is almost sort of besides the point. It's that you were able to do it and make all this money for a bunch of people and take the attention from people. Like this is happening during the finals. Like and LeBron has still managed to get this sort of buzz and sell these many tickets. And I think that's like ultimately all they cared about. And, you know, it's just like, hey, man, figure all that shit out. And then let's uh, count our money at the end of it. Did you guys see the piece that I think came out last week in the Times about Mattel trying to become like the new Marvel? And there's like Mattel Studios now and they're making like a Barbie movie. I think Greta Gerwig is like is directing it and, uh, you know, and and they're doing like a Rock'em Sock'em Robots movie. I mean, we're in this period of like Western civilization (laughs) where (laughs) we are these are the kinds of projects that are getting green lighted and just the um you know this this kind of intellectual property is being mined for all that it's worth and you have like really interesting creative people who are like throwing themselves into these projects i assume because there's a terrifying amount of money involved but when i think about you think about Toy Story, you think about the Lego movie, things that feel like in the wrong hands could have just been totally crass and horrible and felt giving you the feeling that you have when you watch the Space Jam movie, like you're being sold these products in this incredibly cynical way, but weren't that at all. Like there is, I, I, I it, it seems shocking to say this after watching the movie, there's a universe in which this could have been a really interesting movie. I mean, it's like we kind of take for granted this just like ridiculous premise of like the best basketball player in the world playing with the Looney Tunes. I mean, it's it is absolutely bizarre that either of these movies ever existed. But there's a lot of like really interesting fodder there for like a smart screen. Like if like Lord and Miller, who made the Lego movie, had made this, I'm sure it would have been good, actually. And like LeBron James is a like he was good in Trainwreck. He's like a compelling person and screen presence. And, you know, we we kind of joke about like showing off the Warner Brothers back catalog in a way that that um, was not purposeful. Like, okay, if you do have all those characters at your disposal and you have like a smart person thinking about like that could have been potentially interesting. And so it just feels dumb to think about this. Like what a lost opportunity for film, (laughs) like the space jam movie was, but like, ultimately it's easy to sit here and be like, yeah, like LeBron, you know, is not an actor. And I I actually don't think it's a given that the movie had to be this bad. And I think it actually could have been good and interesting. Sure. But when it goes through the meat grinder, the way that so many Hollywood scripts do. But like the Lego movie, like there's no reason the Lego movie. No, I understand that. But the you know the the confluence of a big studio trying to capitalize on LeBron James, and you know maybe LeBron didn't get the right kind of advice about doing this. Maybe you're right, Josh, that this. This feels like something that LeBron thought he had to do because Michael Jordan did it and it would be another line item in his wiki entry. 
was enough and that LeBron and whoever was advising LeBron about this movie didn't say, well, is the movie going to be good? Like, is there a better way to do this that will make me look better and avoid some of the ridicule that we're going to face if we allow this studio to just turn it into, you know, this this highlight reel of their their back catalog? Well, the, the other thing I thought was really interesting from a LeBron standpoint, Joel, was like, so there's this opening credit sequence, and I did make it that far in the first Space Jam. I did watch the opening okay. credits. Where <laughs> is it it's similar? Si- it's similar. Yes. It's similar in that they show Michael Jordan's, like, whole, like, life story in these credits from childhood up through, you know, winning mm-hmm. titles with the Bulls. And they do the same thing with LeBron. And I thought it was interesting in that sequence, but also throughout the the movie, that they showed the, like, Take My Talents to South Beach clip. They talked about him going... Um, you know, from Cleveland to Miami, back to Cleveland and to L.A., not in, like, disparaging terms and not omitting that, that, like, LeBron, and and I think this was a smart point you made, Joel, about how LeBron is way more divisive as, like, a cultural figure than Michael Jordan ever was. But, like, that that's kind of being embraced as part of his story by him and by this movie. Yeah, and I think that, like, we just go back to what I mentioned earlier about, or what uh, Stefan mentioned earlier, I don't know if we, you are Stefan, Josh, about how they changed, uh, you know, directors midstream. It is extremely unusual. I'm not going to say it's unprecedented, but it's extremely unusual for a project this big with this many people for them to change directors midstream. Like, and that suggests there was some huge creative differences in the making of this. And so it's not a surprise that it ended up as a jumble because you had two competing visions and they're sort of trying to merge them together um, while, you know, leaving out sort of the original screenwriter. So, I mean, that's like what you got. It's not a surprise that it ended up like this, um, but it's just sort of sad because it feels like an opportunity lost. And I don't think like, I mean, LeBron, made, the, the important thing for LeBron and his production company is that they made a shitload of money. But like in terms of quality, like. It wasn't there. But then again, you know, Steph and Josh, maybe that doesn't matter. Like, I, you know, we're, we're focusing so much on the quality or whatever. But, like, we know that, like, at the end of the day, that, like, the money that you bring and the value that you can bring to advertisers is ultimately, like, what gets things greenlit or whatever. So, like, it could be that the quality of the movie, uh, the storyline, all that shit, it's like, that's sort of besides the point. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. And 
we did not mention Pepe Le Pew during our previous segment. And or 10,000 other characters. <laughs> uh, well, Pepe Le Pew wasn't actually in Space Jam, A New Legacy. And again, I feel like I have to say this. This is actually true. What I'm about to tell you is true. This was reported in the trade publication <laughs> Deadline. I'm going to read you a paragraph from a story that was published uh, on the internet. It's true. Everything on the internet is true, but this is actually <laughs> true. Pepe was set to appear in a black and white Casablanca-like Rick's Cafe sequence. Pepe, playing a bartender, starts hitting on a woman at a bar. He begins kissing her arm, which she pulls back, then slamming Pepe into the chair next to hers. She then pours her drink on Pepe and slams him hard, sending him spinning in a stool, which is then stopped by LeBron James's hand. James and Bugs Bunny are looking for Lola Bunny, and Pepe knows her whereabouts. Pepe, Pepe then tells the guys that Penelope Cat has filed a restraining order against him. James make a, makes a remark in the script that Pepe can't grab other tunes without their consent. I mean, it's. I guess it's good. The kids learn consent early. Uh, From I mean, LeBron James and Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man. I mean, did, did did any of us think of you know how to spit game and you know a partner via Pepe Le Pew? Like, like maybe that you know this is a good pushback. I don't know. Maybe we, we missed out here. So but Pepe Le Pew was decided was not appropriate. Uh, character mm. as opposed to the, <laughs> as opposed to the um, you know characters from A Clockwork Orange, for example, the Pepe Le Pew was not appropriate <laughs> to be featured in this film, and so the scene has not seen the light of day. Well, um, hey, I mean, by the way, I mean they had Speedy Gonzalez in there, and I, to be honest, I was kind of surprised. Yeah, to see Speedy Gonzalez uh, back in the mainstream. Yeah, Speedy Gonzalez and uh, and Porky Pig <laughs> rapping were the two things that I wondered about. Two of yeah. many. <laughs> so, while acknowledging that Pepe Le Pew, the character, is problematic, I will still ask you, Stefan, what is your Pepe Le Pew? We mentioned your one-year podcast, Josh. Two episodes have dropped so far about Anita Bryant and the gay rights movement and Jimmy Carter and the marijuana legalization movement. The sports episode that comes out this Thursday, right? Thursday? Um, is about Mary Shane, the first woman to get a real chance to announce Major League Baseball games. And next week on the show, we will discuss that episode, and Josh will play some bonus material from interviews that he did. In the meantime, as I said, I want to honor and pump up the pod, so I thought I would take a look at a different 1977 sports story. It was a pretty interesting year. Seattle Slough won the Triple Crown, the Trailblazers, led by Bill Walton, Maurice Lucas, and the University of Pennsylvania's own Corky Calhoun won the NBA championship. Pele delivered his adorable farewell speech at Giants Stadium. Say with me three times, love, love, and love. But it turns out I did an afterball about that in 2013, which I didn't remember. Reggie Jackson hit three homers in Game 6 of the World Series. But I've talked on here before about how I was at the game, and the guy who took me wanted to beat the traffic. So I heard the roar of the third homer from the parking garage at Yankee Stadium. 1977 was big in baseball for another reason, though. The first class of free agents took the field. In December of 1975, an arbitrator's decision effectively abolished the reserve clause that bound players to teams in perpetuity. In July 1976, the Players Union, led by Marvin Miller and management, signed a labor agreement granting certain players free agency. And in November of that year, two dozen players hit the open market. 
It went well for the players. Baseball's average salary in 1976 was $52,300. The average salary for the first class of free agents was more than $200,000. The total value of their deals was around $25 million. The biggest deal went to Reggie Jackson, $2.9 million over five years. The second biggest, a pitcher named Wayne Garland. Garland was a 26-year-old right-hander with the Orioles who had pitched sparingly in his first three seasons in the big leagues. In 1976, the team cut his salary to 19000 from 23000 Garland refused to sign the contract and played out his option. After winning just seven games in his first three years, Garland went 20-7 for the Orioles. His agent, Jerry Capstein, represented 10 of the top free agents, Bobby Gritch, Joe Rudy, Raleigh Fingers, Don Baylor. After teams selected free agents that they could negotiate with, Capstein set up shop in an office building in Providence, Rhode Island, and invited teams to come visit. He knew that Garland would get offers, but his 20-win season was just his first as a full-time starter. A million over five years seemed possible. When a deal with Cleveland was imminent, Capstein summoned Garland to Providence. It's a 10-year deal for $2.3 million, Capstein said, according to a story in the New York Times by Tony Kornheiser. You gotta be kidding, Garland replied. Nobody gets a 10-year deal, and nobody's worth $2.3 million, Capstein told him. I didn't use a gun. It's important to remember that for years, but especially at the outset of free agency, fans and even reporters resented players who cashed in. The day after the signing, a headline in the Cleveland Press asked, Will Garland's salary create problems? Fans got on Garland after he gave up hits in spring training. After Garland lost his first start of the season, an Akron Beacon Journal columnist wrote, Wayne Garland, the $2.3 million pitcher, offered little more than a nickel and dime showing before being dispatched to the showers or the counting room by manager Frank Robinson. Unlike Jackson and the other free agents who were veterans and had won World Series, Garland wasn't a superstar. He wasn't ready for the jeers or the pressure of the contract. Kornheiser wrote that story in July 1977. Garland had a 5-9 record and a 4.62 ERA. It's a painful read. The fans are really getting on me, Garland says in the piece. I can hear them screaming at me. Garland, you $2 million bum. When are you going to start earning your money? They don't treat me like a human being. It's like they think I go out there and pitch with all the money in my back pocket, like I've pulled the wool over their eyes. Look, I go out and pitch the best I can. I didn't ask for the money. Garland told Kornheiser that he was less outgoing and prone to taking his frustrations home to his wife and kids now. He said that his wife told him a few times to call in sick instead of going to the stadium. Once, Kornheiser wrote, Garland called his mother and asked her, why did I even start playing baseball? Brutal. Garland finished 1977 with a 13-19 record. It turned out that he had been pitching all year with shoulder pain. A month into the 78 season, Garland had surgery to repair a torn rotator cuff. He made it back in 79 and had a career moment in 80 when he shut out the Yankees in front of 73,000 fans in Cleveland who had come for a fireworks show not to watch him pitch. But Garland never fully recovered and he was out of the majors at age 30. I wasn't worth the money, Garland said a year after his release. No one is. 
but if they're willing to pay it, I'm willing to take it. It's really striking to me, guys, to read these quotations from players like Garland feeling guilty about getting paid and from team owners swearing they had learned their lesson from the first free agent class that these guys were all overpaid and the free agents didn't do as well as they should have and spending will come down. I mean, no matter what, in any professional sport, if you're a free agent and you sign a contract like that, you're getting paid for what you've done and not necessarily what you would do. And that's always just sort of difficult for fans to reconcile, right? And um, yeah, I mean, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you've yeah, but but put yourself back then, Joel, and it's like these guys were making like he was making nineteen thousand dollars, and suddenly yeah. someone's offering two point three million. Um, yeah. We've really come to accept as a society that athletes are worth the money if someone's willing to pay right. them the money. And at the dawn of free agency, that just didn't exist, and it's really jarring to to read those quotes now. Yeah, man, and I, it, it just sounds like yeah, you know, he had a hell of a time. And man, did you read that the end of his career he had to quit coaching because of injuries? I didn't even know that like that was a thing that could happen. It just, I just feel like I don't know what kind of dude he is. Maybe I don't want to need to know anymore. But I just my heart kind of goes out to him because yeah. like to be in that first class of people and to get that sort of response, I know that had to be scarring. Right, and. It's $2.3 million, but it was over 10 years. It's $230,000 right. a year. And it, I think we talk more now about annual salary than we do overall salary. But um, that $230,000 is a million dollars, basically, in 2021 money. And so you can understand how people... And, and this was also, you know, we're talking about a time in American life where the economy was was not doing really well. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a lot of resentment mm -hmm. around people, you know, doing better than other people. And so I think people were maybe primed to be angry about this. But it is just remarkable that even if we talk about it in terms of a million dollars a year, that's just something that as a society we're just totally kind of used to and on board with um, at this point. Thinking on that a little bit too, this is sort of the first generation of athletes that like, this is like when professional sports are like a real moneymaker. Like people are coming to grips with the fact that, oh, there's actually some money in this as opposed mm -hmm. to like the environment where dudes work jobs in the off season and stuff like that. So that probably they're like, wait, sports is that important? You can make money in sports? You know, like we're not, we had not gr had a generation of that yet. Uh, at that point. So I can only imagine that, yeah, people were resentful, um, not rightfully so. And also just imagine how bad it was for the black players. Oof. Like this is a white yeah. guy who's getting this kind of, who's getting attacked yeah. um, in this way, like in, in baseball. Um, and so just the level of like vitriol and, and rancor yeah. here is like pretty off the charts. The one positive thing I'll say is if you look up Wayne Garland, uh, like Google Images, he just looks like every 1970s and 80s baseball player that I remember growing up. You know, so it's sort of that part of it is delightful. So if you if you want to feel good and like just like remember the past, like looking at Wayne Garland, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's 1970s baseball right there. All right, so we'll link uh, on the show page to Tony Kornheiser's story and to an excellent uh, biography of Wayne Garland by Joseph Wancho on the website of the Society for American Baseball Research. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Alyssa Eads. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. 
please subscribe to the show and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. That would be quite helpful. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>